Thanks for listening to the Mornings with Carmen LaBerge podcast, made available thanks to support from listeners just like you. Your daily encouragement that God has the world in the hollow of his hand. This is Mornings with Carmen LaBerge on Faith Radio. If we're going to fly, we fly like eagles. Who are you following today and who is following you? What kind of counsel will those who are following you receive? Where will they be led today? So as people follow you, where will they be led today? People are following us, um, whether we recognize it or not, whether we like it or not, whether we chose them or not. Um, So who is following your wisdom and counsel who who seeks out advice and counsel from you and where does it lead them where does it land them proverbs 19:20 is today's growing your faith verse of the day get all the advice and counsel you can so you will be wise the rest of your life get all the advice and counsel you can have you heard the phrase advice and counsel recently i mean if you If you listen or pay attention to the headline news, you are hearing a lot about advice and counsel. Well, well, based on the advice and counsel of my attorneys, based on the advice and counsel, mm -hmm, I'm going to exercise my constitutional right to remain silent. I'm not going to answer the questions you're asking, even though I have sworn to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help me God. So whose advice and counsel? Whose advice and instruction? are we following? It matters to whom we listen. It matters from whom we get advice. It matters who we count as our counselors. Do you have wise friends? Are you a wise friend? Do people seek you out for advice and counsel? Would God see what you say? Would God see what what I say as consistent with his character and his will as he has revealed it in his word and by his spirit? Like, would God judge us to be wise? Um, we talk some about, like, testing the spirits, and let's, you know, let's, let's test the spirits. Let's be sure that, uh, you know, we're aligned with the Holy Spirit and we're following those who are aligned with the Holy Spirit. Has it ever occurred to you that when others test the spirits, they're testing our testimony? Like when other people today are testing the spirit, they're testing the spirit in the room, they're testing uh, uh, the spirit of those that they're listening to. They're testing our testimony. They're testing what we say. They're testing the advice and counsel that we offer. And if they're testing it against what God has revealed to be the truth, the way, and the life, will we be found to be wise counselors, faithful people that others can follow? Yes, God says, get all the advice and instruction you can, so you will be wise the rest of your life. But other places, God tells you where to get that advice and instruction. And it's from him. Seek God. God is the fount of wisdom. He's the true source, the one 
who alone is in a position to judge between what is wise and what is foolish. Job said, with him, with God, are wisdom and might. To him belong counsel and understanding. Proverbs 4.11, I have directed you in the ways of wisdom. I have led you in upright paths. Psalm 32.8, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will counsel you. I will watch over you. Um, God is the wise counselor. He is the one whose advice we are called to search and follow. Job, Daniel, Solomon, Jesus. Like you've got, you got people whose pattern of life you can follow on this front. So uh, which will it be today? Are you going to choose to walk in the way of wisdom that leads to life, or are you going to follow the advice and counsel of the power brokers of the day? The Bible's got something to say about that, too, and the word is folly. All right, next I'm going to tell you a story of a man who was literally on a path of destruction. He was not only destroying his own life, he was destroying the lives of others as well. It was December 1981. We now know that he stalked and did terrible things, too, as a sexual predator and murdered more than 30 women. But on this day, in December of 1981, he kidnapped a young mom with her Suburban loaded with Christmas gifts, two small kids at home. And God used her to bring him to himself. It's a crazy story. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Have you got any music? That was the question that Margie Palm asked. Have you got any music? All right. So uh, it's about 8 o'clock in the evening, December the 11th, 1981. There's a serial killer on the loose in San Antonio, Texas. His name is Stephen Morin. uh, And he has taken Margie Palm captive in uh, in a Kmart parking lot in San Antonio, Texas. He has uh, forced his way into her SUV, her Chevy Suburban. Now, helicopters are actually circling the city, and police are actually combing the streets, warning people to stay inside and lock their doors, not because they know that Morin has kidnapped Margie Palm in the Kmart parking lot, but because they know that he's on the loose in their city. He has uh, been on what they describe as a reign of terror, um, suspected of murder, torture, and rape of more than 30 women in nine or 10 states. They're not quite sure about that. Most of San Antonio knew he was on the, on the loose. But, um, but Margie Palm wasn't following the news. She was, <laughs> she was very busy raising little kids and organizing for Christmas parties and working with the Junior League and all kinds of things that wonderfully privileged people do. Ignore the news. So there she finds herself uh, kidnapped by a person who she doesn't really, she doesn't know who he is and she doesn't know what he has done because she's not been following the news. What she does know is that this man had pulled out a thirty-eight revolver on her um, uh, at about two in the afternoon in the parking lot of Kmart. And they've now been driving around for like six hours. And her husband has not yet suspected uh, that 
that she's missing because she's out Christmas shopping. And, you know, that takes a while. And this is before you recall the days of cell phones. So um, it's fair to say that Margie Palm looked a whole lot like uh, Morin's other victims. She was pretty. She had blonde hair. She was fit. She was young. Um, She had never felt this kind of fear. That's one of the things that she talked about in her testimony. Um, So Marin is cranked up on amphetamines and feeling increasingly cornered. And he started by screaming at her at terrible, terrible things, things that I will not read uh, on the air. Um, But again, she didn't know who she was dealing with. And, um, and so she, uh, asks him if he's got any music. And, uh, and then at one point, um, when he's screaming at her, she just closes her eyes to calm herself. He's just shouting out at her. Um, and he's, you know, he's got a gun, he's got knives. I mean, you know, and then she, (laughs) she says, God put me in this car for a reason. And she said, I said to myself, I'm not afraid of him and I'm not going to hate him. And she started praying out loud for Marin. And he's screaming, oh, my God, I'm in the car with a religious freak. Now, Marin was a career criminal. Um, He was used to disarming his victims um, with his charisma and uh, his bag of aliases. He was described... Um, at various trials uh, as very, very charming. And um, once she begins to sense that um, he's used to overpowering women, Margie Palm caught him completely off guard by seeking to disarm what she perceived to be the evil spirit within him. I'm telling you the truth. This is this happened in 1981. And you're saying to yourself, why have I never heard this story? Because no one's ever published it. No one's ever published it. This is crazy. She's now 71. Her daughter, who was like four at the time, is now a trauma counselor. And over the course of the last couple of years has led her mom to the point that she's willing to tell her story. So you've never heard the story because, um, well, if you have heard the story, you've only heard it in parts and pieces. You haven't heard the whole thing. It's coming out in the September issue of Vanity Fair, and it's going to be like 16 pages long. Like It's, it's, a, it's crazy long-form journalism, so uh, we're only going to get so far into it today. But suffice it to say that um, she prays out loud. She's shouting out loud in the passenger seat of the Suburban, you evil spirits, go now, go away. In the name of Jesus, go away. You will not keep destroying this man's life, and you will not destroy mine. Leave this car now. <laughs> Her husband, Bart, later says, later recounts, he's like, we're Episcopalians. Th- this is not what we do. I don't, sh- yeah, this, we don't, casting out demons, it's not my thing. I don't think it's her thing. Um, but she believes she was there for a purpose. And that threw him off. Um, he couldn't dominate her because she was already dominated by God. Morin, um, I mean, he comes, he comes to the point where um, this, this confrontation with the reality of 
the evil spirit within him uh, brings about radical conversion. And so I want to tell you, I want to tell you the rest of the story in just a moment. But um, but let me say this. Uh, Margie Palm had been, yes, a passive Episcopalian, like her husband describes, um, pretty much all her life. But what her family and no one else knew is that she had actually experienced a pretty radical spiritual awakening during a, a retreat in Las Cruces, New Mexico, 10 years earlier. And she would basically had this quiet, secret war room faith that she would carry out in her closet. And even on the morning that she was kidnapped, the morning of December 11th, she says, um, like every morning, I got on my knees in my closet and I told God I would serve him however he needed me that day. I just didn't know on that day it would be like this. The rest of the story in just a moment. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. So glad you are listening to Mornings with Carmen. This is Bill Arnold. I would love for you to check out my podcast in the afternoons. It's called Afternoons with Bill Arnold. Spent the entire marketing budget coming up with that name. But we do scripture engagement and have lots of fun. Make sure you can check it out at myfaithradio.com. All right, uh, we are talking about Margie Palm. She was abducted by uh, a serial killer in a Kmart parking lot in December, December 11th, actually, of 1981. She not only survived to tell the story, um, she befriended him when he was on death row. Um, she prayed with him. She spiritually counseled him after she led him to the Lord. So... Um, She's been uh, abducted. She's in the suburban. She's praying that the evil spirits would uh, would depart. Um, eventually, uh, he gets thirsty. He wants a case of beer. He wants some cigarettes. So he sends her into a 7-Eleven, and he asks her to pick up three things. Um, cigarettes, a case of beer, and a newspaper. Now, remember, she's not a person that, that follows the news. So... She wasn't aware of who he is. Well, so he sends her in to get this newspaper, and she says, that's when I realized just what kind of trouble I was in. So uh, the, the front page of the newspaper is, uh, is obviously covered with information about the person she is with. And, um, and she says, that, that is actually when I began to fear for my life, and I thought I might die. So um, she comes out of the 7-Eleven, and uh, I know you have lots of questions about why she didn't tell somebody while she was in the 7-Eleven what was going on. I don't know the answer to that question. She comes back out of the 7-Eleven, and there is a phone booth there, and Morin forces her into the phone booth and at gunpoint forces her to call her husband, Bart, and tell him that everything's fine, that she's going to shop, be shopping uh, late into the evening, not worry about her. So Bart um, you know, feeds the kids, gives them baths, puts them to bed. He's not worried either until he's watching the 10 o'clock news. And the entire episode is devoted to this rampage of the serial killer who the San Antonio Police Department know is in their city. They know he's there. And so Bart says, you know what? My wife's not home. And he calls the cops. Meanwhile, uh, what is going on in the Chevy Suburban while it is uh, driving around now for hours on end? Um, I know you're saying... How, how is that possible? You got to remember, this is before cell phones. This is before, 
You know, we got GPS in our cars where they can track us everywhere. Okay, so this is a different story than what happened today. But this is the story from 1981. So um, uh, here's the conversation that eventually unfolds. Uh, And I'm just going to read from the Vanity Fair article. Palm had been trying to tell Marin for hours that everyone is worthy of forgiveness. But he hadn't been buying it. She turned to him and she just posed a question. Oh, by the way, in the context of their hours-long conversation, he had said at one point that um, uh, that people hated him, and rightly so, and he hated himself, um, that he'd been married, he had a son, that he loved so much, and yet he'd abandoned him. He had told her about his very, very traumatic childhood and, and his own um, sexual abuse as a child, on and on and on. So she has an understanding that he is a broken person in addition to being a criminal, a sociopath, a murderer. Okay, so she says, if your son committed the kind of crimes that you did, do you think you'd be able to forgive him? If your son committed the kinds of crimes you have committed, do you think you could forgive him? That, my friends, led to a conversation about the gospel. Marin um, said, lady, you've been preaching at me all day long, and I think I understand what you're saying. Their conversation um, was calm, um, and uh, at one point, he, she fell asleep, which is staggering to even imagine. That apparently freaked him out even more. He pulled the, the Suburban off the road jumped out, threw his hands in the air and said, I'm sorry, Lord, I'm sorry for everything I've done. Please forgive me. I want to go to heaven. Um, he, uh, he pulls over uh, a little a few miles later at a rest stop, opens his revolver, pours all the bullets into her purse and said, I'm never going to kill you and I'm never going to kill again. And that's when she tells him, this is a strange part of the story as well. She tells him about uh, ev- televangelist Kenneth Copeland, <laughs> whose ministry is based in Fort Worth. And, um, and they agree that what he should do is, you know, in this grand gesture, he should go to Fort Worth and he should lay his gun on Kenneth Copeland's desk. That, that's how he should uh, confess himself, turn himself in. Um. So uh, there's a bus station in Kerrville. It's a it's a small city, um, uh, and this is long before the internet. So here's what they devise: they decide they're going to take money out of an ATM. So she takes her money out of an ATM. She buys him a bus ticket. Now he's got to transfer buses in Austin. I mean, this is a crazy story. He's going to take a bus from Kerrville to Austin. He's going to change buses. He's going to take the bus from Austin to Fort Worth. And he's going to find Kenneth Copeland's office and he's going to lay his gun down on the desk and that's where he's going to turn himself in. <laughs> and he says, don't you want to come with me? And she says, you know, I got two little kids at home. I think I, I think I got to get, I got to get home, but God is with you. You won't be by yourself. So, um, she drove herself home in her suburban. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more to this story and we can, we can spend time, uh, in the future reveling about it. But, um, but suffice it to say that uh, this is a man who, when police showed up at that, uh, at that bus station, he didn't resist arrest. Um, he, uh, he, didn't, he, he confessed his crimes in court before they had even been able to read all the charges against him. 
Um, I mean, he stood up and he confessed his crimes um, and he didn't resist execution. In fact, um, the, the state attorney of the of the state of Texas, upon his execution, said, I've 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 never seen anything like it. It was literally like a person going into surgery when when they're put to sleep. This was a person who was at peace with God. Now, you can imagine that um, his surviving victims and the the family members of his victims who he killed uh, do not believe that he ever changed. But Margie Palm believed he had. And um, and so did many others. And so here's the question. If your son, if your daughter had committed heinous crimes, would you still love them? Would you forgive them? Because that's the gospel. And God used a woman named Margie Palm to deliver it on a particular day to a tormented soul. who said, I'm ready to die. I'm going to be with the Lord on the day of his execution. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Have you ever been in love? Have you ever been in love? How long did it take you to tell the person that you love that you love them? Like, how, how long? And, and who's tracking these things? Who who even knows the answer to this question, really? Like, who's tracking these things? Or maybe this is actually something that's, like, seared into our minds the first time we said it um, to the person that we love. I'll just confess that, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm way faster at this, apparently, than, uh, than the statistical average. On average, according to the polling I am now reading, um, published in the Sage Journal of Social and Personal Relationships, on average... Men thought about confessing their love for their beloved 69 days into a relationship. Women didn't think about it until 77 days in, which means that on average, men at least think about saying I love you before women think about saying I love you. But guess what? They don't actually say it when they think about saying it. Um, so I love you wasn't usually said in a relationship until day 107 for men and day 122 for women, which means that on average, women waited two weeks after hearing someone say, I love you, to say it back. Are you kidding me? Seriously? People, if somebody tells you they love you and you love them, you say it back. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God loves you. And God has said, I love you. And he has said it in a tangible and real way. Don't wait to say it back. Our friend Dan DeWitt's going to join us next. Uh, We're going to talk about religion. Some people call it a crutch. Some people think of it as a drug. Come to find out, it might actually really be good for us. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Correlation or causation? Correlation or causation? Just because you know there's a correlation between two things, can you actually prove there's a cause? 
Dan DeWitt is here with us. You can read what we're talking about at theolatte.com. Good morning, Daniel. Good morning, Carmen. What's crack-a-lacking? Whew, I move Ellie into college tomorrow. I have to be on a Zoom oh, call my tonight goodness. as like a new college parent. Won't oh, that be my fun? goodness. Well, congratulations <laughs> and prayers and... I've not sent my own to college. Mine are in their, my oldest are in their junior year of high school. But I have, for the last several years, um, prayed with parents as they're saying goodbye to their kids. Right. So I've seen it firsthand, although I've not experienced it. So I will be praying for you. And I expect, Ellie. I expect, thank you. I expect a lot of, uh, of crying on Jim's part. A lot of crying. I'm just saying, because she's probably the, I mean, you know, Matthew is very likely not going off to college. I mean, there wouldn't be a scenario in which I could imagine that. So this is the last one that, you know, we take and deposit in this way. Wow. It's a big change. I know, it's a big change. There you go. That's what's crack-a-lacking here. Um, <laughs> all right. So um, first of all, I am kind of excited that Harvard University has a human flourishing program and an initiative on health, spirituality, and religion. That's kind of exciting to even like know that that's happening. Um, and there's a correlation between religion and physical health. Is there causation? Well, we can't prove causation, right? That's really, there's so many factors that would go into someone's mental wellness and flourishing. But what we can say is um, statistically, people who are participate in religious communities who profess religious belief, that that's correlated with all kinds of positive health effects. In fact, Tyler Vanderweel originally wrote an article, I believe, for Time magazine um, a few years back, um, calling religion a wonder drug, that, you know, if you look at all the positive health benefits correlated with religious belief and belonging and behavior, um, that we could only kind of step back and say, it seems like it's a wonder drug, far from having negative effects. As some people, you know, years ago, Richard Dawkins claimed that faith was delusion, um, which is mental, a mental illness. Um, Tyler Vanderweel shows, no, actually, it, it leads to mental wellness. Um, there's actually a book um, called Wonder Drug, um, and it's about the science of proving that serving others um, hmm. is, 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 does have a causation relationship with physical and mental health, physical and mental well-being. And so when I saw your article, Religion, a Wonder Drug, um, I wasn't surprised. Um, and these doctors who are not Christians, who wrote Wonder Drug, um, they give all these testimonies that, you know, people who who they are treating, people who are receiving treatment in um, in all kinds of uh, medical situations and in mental health situations, get better faster, stay healthier longer, return to the hospital less frequently um, with complications or recurring issues if they are serving other people, not just that they are being served in, a, in the context of a religious community, but that they are actively... Um, engaged in serving others it's a and so i when we talk about causation um you know i wonder if we're talking not just about being in a relationship with god which is obviously an incredibly important thing from my perspective but being engaged with a believing community 
Yeah, and that would be, you know, another layer that would be hard to say. Like, is it necessarily this faith community or is it just a community? Um, Mm. But what we have Mm. to say is that Christianity is holistic and that it involves belonging. We're actually commanded with Christianity to, to not forsake assembling with other people, to prefer one another. It involves the layer of what you just mentioned of serving, that we serve one another, that we prefer others over ourselves. And so when you look at the way of Jesus, what we see is that it, it, it actually correlates with all of these things that lead to flourishing. And so it reminds me of there's a book, um, I forget how many years ago, within the last decade, by Andrew Sims, who is the former um, president of the Royal College of Psychiatrists, and he also was a professor of psychiatry at the University of Leeds, very influential um, professor and academic and psychiatrist. And he wrote a book, Is Faith Delusion? And I have a link to an article which kind of summarizes the book um, in this article that we're discussing. But he gives a long list of all the things that are correlated with religious belief and belonging and behavior. And it's remarkable. And what he says, he based his research off at that point, the largest study of, um, of religiosity as it correlates to uh, mental health. And he said, you know, the findings point to overwhelmingly that religion is good for one's health. And he said, you know, the remarkable thing is people didn't, didn't seem to notice. He said, if the evidence had went the opposite direction, if it showed that religion was actually bad for your mental health, if the evidence was overwhelmingly in the opposite direction, it would have been front page news. But sometimes in our secular moment, we overlook the fact that the way of Jesus really is the path to joy. I mean, there seems to be something lasting in Jesus's promise to his disciples when he says, if you will lose your life for my sake, you will find it. And again and again, it seems that these the, the headlines and the research are reverberating with the promise of Jesus, that there is a way to peace, and Jesus paves the way. Mm. That's so good. Um, Again, we're talking with Dan DeWitt, Theolatte.com. You should check out this week's Worldview Reader. It's the Back to School edition. There will be things in it that you will say to yourself, huh, I think Carmen told us that story. So if you're looking for the link for the conversation that we just had, um, that's the article that's going to appear in Vanity Fair. Dan has actually linked to it in this week's Worldview Reader. So go to theolate.com, go to the blog, scroll down, you'll see uh, that true crime, true faith piece posted there as well. Dan, when we talk about, um, uh, I don't know if people have been to the doctor lately, but, you know, they ask you in the pre in the pre-meeting, right, all of the online stuff we now fill out, like, you know, what are you taking? Are you taking anything? And I wonder um, how many of us are on drugs that we wouldn't necessarily need to be on or maybe need to continue being on if we were re-engaged actively as people of faith. Yeah, you know, and, and we're probably, you know, scratching the surface of this really big conversation that a lot of people have about mental health. And, you know, there's Christians who are very strongly opposed to any kind of medication. Mm. And I don't think that's where you would come from. There's a, a place, a time and a place for, for all of these things. But what we can't do is medicate away the needs, the deepest needs of our heart. And the deepest needs of our heart are really to get back to God's good design 
for us and for the world to be connected to him, to be connected to other believers, to be serving? And I think that's a great question. How, how much, not all of it, we can't explain all mental illness away or physical illness away just to spiritual things, but we are complex beings. We are body-soul beings, and sometimes we only care for the body when our soul is famished and our soul is longing for connection, and it could be amazing. Um, for someone even listening who's disconnected from other believers, maybe they've not been to church for a long time, or if they go to church, maybe they kind of sit in the back and leave as soon as it's over. I can identify with that, with social anxiety, and at times church can feel a bit superficial. But dig a bit deeper and find someone you can connect with in a community you connect with within your faith, within your church, and you'll find that those relationships are a, a therapy because God made you for that. And there's nothing like um, that sense of I'm doing the thing that God's created me for. And you'll never get that sense if you're not disconnect, if you're not connected to God and if you're not connected to other believers. Mm. Um, I think that people, not everybody knows how to make that connection. Like they, they don't know how to connect or reconnect with God. Would you like to just spend a couple of minutes inviting people into a restored relationship with the Father through the Son by the power of the Spirit? Oh, wow. Yeah, thank you. Um, I have a link to a book that I had, had not paid much attention to until you um, emailed me about it, but it's The Great Dechurching, and it's a, and actually the video that's linked in the Worldview Reader is an interview from Ed, with Ed Stetzer interviewing the guys who wrote that book. And they suggest that 15% of Americans are de-churched, and they define that as people who've went to used to go to church at least once a month, and now they no they no longer go to church anymore. And they suggest that a large percentage of those people who've disconnected with the church are still believers and still have orthodox beliefs. And so, what I would want to say to someone who's maybe stepped away and is feeling the real, tangible loss of community. I would want to invite you to reconsider. It may not be the same church that you went to. It may even be kind of a different flavor. You know, I grew up very independent, King James-only Baptist, and I'm, you know, still Baptist, but not that that flavor anymore. Um, I would invite you to come back to the community of faith where your soul can be nourished and where you could be cared for. I know that you've been hurt. I know that there have been disappointments. I know that you're probably sick to your stomach over some of the spiritual abuses you've seen by religious leaders and in the church, and I would just want you to know those things those things discussed Jesus as well. Um, but you still need Christian fellowship. And so find a very imperfect church that's striving to be like Jesus. As Ray Ortland, the pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, so often said, find somewhere that not, not only has gospel content, but gospel culture and come back to a community of faith that can love you and can see you through the hardest times of life because it come, they come for all of us. We need, desperately need Jesus, and we desperately need each other. And I would say one last thing, Carmen. The, the church you're going to go to, they need you too. They're, they are missing out on the blessings and your life story and your gifts and your talents. So don't deprive them anymore, and don't deprive yourself either. Mm, that's so good. All right, here's something to uh, noodle on um, for the next uh, minute or so. Is that gift 
you received really a gift or was that a loan um, or were you being paid a wage for something that you did? What's the d- difference between a gift, a loan and a wage? We're going to talk about teaching our kids about money and learning about it ourselves. That's up next here on Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Mornings with Carmen. As you know, this is a rebroadcast of the live radio show carried on the Faith Radio Network. There's a lot going on at Faith Radio. Tons of free resources just waiting for you and for you to share with others at MyFaithRadio.com. How does that all happen? Well, it happens through listener support. So Faith Radio, Mornings with Carmen, all available because of listener support from listeners, well, just like you. If you're a supporter, thank you so very much. If you'd like to become a supporter today, just visit MyFaithRadio.com. And again, thanks for being a part of what we do every day at Mornings with Carmen. All right. uh, So, you know, that money in your pocket, is that a gift? Is that a loan? Is that a wage? Dan DeWitt is here. Uh, He learned a lesson about the difference between the three and thought it'd be fun, Dan, if you'd share share that with us today. Yeah, I wrote an article on this for a parenting magazine recently, and it's one of those lessons I learned the hard way and I've tried to teach my kids. And so, my twin boys, who are our oldest of our four kids, turned 17 in a couple months, and they are now making money. In fact, I have one son who worked at a summer camp all summer long, made really good money and a lot of great memories as well. And the lesson that I try to teach them and that I learned the hard way is that it is not good for us to blur the lines between what we're doing with our money. And what I mean by that and the way I learned it was I had someone when I was a grad student who offered me some work, and so I was doing some creative work for them. And and even now, I still do creative consulting on the side. But back then, I was for him creating um, some graphic design and PowerPoint. And at some point in that, my wife and I got in a car wreck. We had a semi-truck that the drive axle fell off. We hit it, busted up our tires, along with about 12 other cars. There was a long line of cars on the side of the road. And shortly after that, I got a check. Um, from the person who had employed me and uh, to help with the repairs, which was great because we were stone cold broke. And so received that money and I kept doing the work. And at some point not my computer kind of um, pooped out. And so I received a used laptop from that person. And after doing the work for several months and not getting paid, I, I asked, you know, we've never really talked about the details of this. And I was told when you work back the gift of that check I sent you, And when you work back the payment for that laptop I gave you, then we could start talking about payments. Well, I decided I'm going to do just that. I'll work back that those amounts. And I worked over the hours that were expected. And I gave an invoice that showed how I repaid the the gifts and also done a little bit more, but that was going to be forgiven. And the work relationship was ended at that point. Um, But for me, even though those things were blessings, it was a blessing that God taught me a hard way that we should never call something a gift that has Mm. strings attached. Mm -hmm. And if it has if it has strings attached, it's a wage. And we just need to be clear about that. Um, And then finally, there's a a third category. And we could probably think of more like an offering or a tithe. But for the article and what I try and teach my kids is anytime money leaves your hands, it's either a gift, no strings attached at all, as much as you can, humanly speaking. Or it's a loan. You expect someone to repay it. Maybe you're going to have them pay you a little bit more. Hopefully not, but 
be clear about it. And then if you exp- if you have strings attached, then it's actually not a gift. It's a payment. Well, and I think that the clarity and communication is huge here because I can I can hear a tape that sounds something like, hey, let me help you out with that. I mean, yeah. I know you have a need. Um, let me help you out with that. And as the person receiving the help, maybe I need to ask just straight up, um, is this a gift or do you expect me to pay you back? Um, yes. Because I think that sometimes when we're offering help, we haven't even thought all the way through that. And we probably make assumptions um, but based on relationships that the person, you know, well, they understand. I mean, surely they understood it was a loan. And we're like, no, I didn't understand it was a loan. You said you were helping me out. I thought it was a gift. I, I guarantee everyone listening has some story with money. that <laughs> There was relational tension because oh. there was not clarity. Yeah, no That's question about it. No. Yeah. Well, and if, you, and if it, you've ever received an accounting... Here are all the gifts I have given you, and here's the accounting and how it compares to the accounting of others. I'm just like, yeah, no, trust me, you are not wrong that people are keeping, some people are keeping very close track. Um, And others of us, I mean, I will will just confess, I am a very open-handed giver. When I give, it's gone. I don't think about it again. Um, in fact, I gave a gift to someone and it was quite substantial in order to launch them into, um, into something that I believed in and I believed in them in the midst of it. And I gave it as a gift. And like 25 years later, he and his wife like wanted to quote unquote pay me back. And I'm like, what are you talking about? And he was like, well, you, you helped me with this years ago. And I'm like, and it was a gift. I haven't thought about it since. And so I do think that um, depending on, I mean, I just know that there are people who are in a position to be generous in ways that some of the rest of us could not even ever imagine. And we are in a position to be more generous than some other people could ever even imagine. And so whatever God has given you, it's a gift. Freely you have received, freely give. These would be maybe some of the principles for Christians in the midst of this. I mean, if you're in a position to do it, just do it. And you'll find so much joy in it. You know, there is there is no joy in keeping a record of oh. debts, um, especially unclear debts where people don't entirely realize they're indebted to you. And I was thankful God taught me that lesson because I've tried to be, as you've just described, to, to consciously, intentionally, not only in my heart and mind, think I'm giving this as a gift, but also make it very clear as much as I can to liberate the recipient. Look, I, I don't want this to be repaid. I don't want anything in return. And after they say thank you and express their gratitude, say, don't, this, was, this is more of a joy to me. It's more blessed to give than receive. I don't think that's helpful to say every time you give someone something, but to let them know, like, look, you don't have to tell me thank you every time you see me. I wanted to do this. And I think that that, and, and there are going to be times where people need a loan, right? And it's okay to say, here's X amount of dollars um, that sacrificially we're going to take some money out of savings to help you with a pretty big problem. And, you know, here's the repayment method. So there, there's a time and a place for a loan. But again, be clear about it. Um, and there's also a, a, certainly a time and a place for a wage. And in all these things, 
Christians are called to be to be generous with with our money, generous in our hearts, generous with our words. And I found over and over again, Carmen, people who are generous, we think money, but it doesn't just apply to money. It applies to their words and their time. And I found that people who are chintzy or stingy, that that applies to their money and their words and their time. So let generosity increasingly be that attribute that people think about when they think about us. Um, God gave this to me to give to you. That is my line when I am mm. passing along something to a person in need who I don't who I don't know. Like I don't know them. I'm actually, yeah. you know, normally passing this out of the window of my car on my way past. God gave this to me to give to you because that way mm. everybody knows it's a gift and um and I release it freely. So maybe that's an yes. encouragement to someone today. Dan, as always, thank you so much. What a delight. Thanks, Carmen. Yeah, so good to talk with you. That's Daniel DeWitt. Uh, you can find him and everything we talked about today at theolatte.com. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Whew. All right, a big question here um, from uh, from a listener this morning. Um, how do you give something to God when someone very close to you is is hurting you? Um, and they don't have an interest in changing. They think uh, they think that what they're doing and what they're saying is is fine, but it's actually you know verbally abusive and judgmental and profane. Um, let me say this, dear friend: uh, what you are dealing with is is a spiritual war and spiritual warfare. This one only comes out by prayer. Um, what you are describing is a very serious spiritual condition, and you have to deal with it. Um, through spiritual warfare. So um, not uh, not by power, not by might, but by the Spirit. Um, and the Spirit that is within you um, has overcome the world. And so um, let us do battle on your behalf with you by the power of the Holy Spirit and through prayer and ask that um, this individual, this relationship be redeemed in Christ Jesus. He alone is Lord, and yes, He is closer to you than your next breath. If you haven't done so already, text the word CLOSER to 877-933-2484. Susie Larson is going to join us in the next hour um, as well. What a joy that will be. You're listening to Mornings with Carmen. Thanks for listening to Mornings with Carmen LeBurge. Podcasts like this are available because of your support. If it's important to you to hear things that encourage your faith, click the link in the show notes to give now. And thanks.